pride and humility. Well, if you're joining us here for the first time, what we've been doing uh, since the beginning of uh, the pandemic is I decided to look at the book of 1 Corinthians. And as I'm working through this, uh, it's been challenging because, you know, as I go through the text, uh, I'm kind of forced to preach what the pastor tells me. And I think that's a good practice for me as well. Uh, but it is long and it's getting long and there's a lot more to go. And so I'm not sure uh, how long we're going to be in this book after all. We haven't even gotten to the juicy parts yet, and uh, we're still here in chapter four, and we're looking just here at two verses, two verses. And this, this sermon is going to be um, relatively, I think, short or shorter than usual, uh, and it touches on something that I think that many of us are in some ways already aware of, in some ways uh, we kind of already know but also need to be reminded of as well, especially as people of faith. And so we're looking here at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to verse 7. Let me just pray for the Word of God just before we continue. Father, we thank you so much for our service today. We thank you, God, for those who are able to join us today. We ask you, Lord, that as we continue now to be faithful, even in the midst of uh, sometimes what feels chaotic, sometimes what feels uncertain, Lord, give us a kind of groundedness that reminds us of who you are, who we are, and how you've called us to always look to you uh, as we navigate uh, the things of our lives and our responsibilities and the things in the world as well. And so, Lord, uh, teach us today, convict us, remind us, and challenge us. In Christ name we pray. <clears throat> Amen. Uh, <clears throat> I just got three points here. I try to usually, you know, give us maybe three, three points or three ways to kind of help outline and follow along with this sermon. Uh, and that is this. First, what's the problem here that Paul is addressing in these two verses? Okay, what's the problem? Secondly, why there's no excuse for it? Why there's no excuse for it? And then thirdly, uh, what can we do about it? Okay, what's the problem? Why there's no excuse for it? And, and, and what can we do about it? And that's what we're looking at briefly if we're trying to follow along here. Okay, so let's look at that. First of all, what's the problem here? And there are a lot of problems, okay? There are a lot of problems in this church. And I think that's one of the reasons I thought this would be an applicable letter to our church and to many churches, because a lot of the things that they struggled with are very similar to a lot of things that we struggle with today. And there are a lot of problems in this church, and Paul is addressing each and every one. But what we're doing here in these two verses and what Paul is doing is that he is addressing not just the problem on the surface, but the problem, what he believes underneath all these problems, okay? And if you remember on the surface, the very first problem that they had that Paul talks about is a problem of division, a problem of division. They were polarized, um, split over philosophical issues, political issues, thinking of, of their day. One group would say, hey, well, you know, we're the ones who believe this politically or philosophically. We follow this person. And the other guy would say, hey, well, we, we believe in this philosophically and politically. And we follow that person. And even though they agreed on, on the tenets of the Christian faith, right, they disagreed on, on many of these issues. And so it became an issue of division, an issue of division. And as soon as they would identify with one, one little group, they would say, hey, this is my group. <clears throat> this is what I agree with. And we're better than you. And so Paul is addressing this problem, but he addresses this problem by addressing the problem beneath the problem. And we find that here. What is the issue that he's addressing? In verse six, he says this. I have applied <clears throat> all these things to myself for your benefit, brothers, <clears throat> that you may learn from us 
not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Here in verse 6, Paul gives us the reason for why he's writing what he did. And he's seeing this. He said, I'm writing this so that none of you may be puffed up. That's the language he uses. Now, the easiest way to think about what that means is this. If you think about a frog, right, just before it croaks, you know, it, it swells up. It swells up. It puffs up. Okay. And Paul's saying, don't be like that. Don't be puffed up. You see, the Corinthians here in, the, in this church, they had, a, they had a problem. They were, Paul says, puffed up. They had frog throats. They were gloating. They were boasting. They were arrogant in many ways. In fact, he speaks about this again and again in this letter. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 18, he says it again. Some of you are puffed up. He uses that language, puffed up. And what he's talking about is pride. He's talking about pride. The Corinthians were proud. They were proud of their wisdom. They were proud of their spirituality. They were proud of their gifts. They were very proud. Now, let's be clear. Nothing is necessarily wrong with being proud of something. But when things fall apart, when things become divisive, when there's quarreling, when there's fighting, because of pride, sinful pride, then you know you've got a problem. You've got an issue. Because you know what else puffs you up? Do you know what else kind of makes you swell up emotionally and physically? It's not just pride. It's also anger. It's anger. And where there's anger, you can be sure pride is not very far off. And where there's pride, sinful pride, anger is usually just around the corner. So they're very related. And so this issue here, dealing with pride, that's the problem that Paul is dealing with. It's a very common issue, isn't it? I mean, you know, you've been to those prayer meetings and you're to go around and share a prayer topic and you just couldn't think of anything. And so oftentimes you say, well, I guess I struggle with pride right? Pride. It's a very common sort of prayer topic, but it's a real issue. It was a real issue in this church, and it's a real issue with us. And so Paul wants to deal with the issue of the sin of pride. <clears throat> and you see this clearly enough in our passage this morning. If you look at the end of verse 6, this is why he's writing, so that none of us may be puffed up in favor of one against another. That's the problem, okay? That's the issue. That's the first point. Now, Let's look at the second point here, why I think Paul says there is no excuse for it. And I think the reasons he gives is, 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 is something we, we relate with very quickly, very easily. And the way he gives his reasons is by asking you two questions, and they're found in verse 7. These are two questions he asks that are, in fact, rhetorical questions. And the first question he asks is this, verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? He says, don't be puffed up favoring one against the other, because who sees anything different in you? Now, what does he mean by that? Literally, that question is this. Who made you better than anyone else? You know, this is the question that we ask when we are upset at someone who has kind of looked down upon us, who, who seems to act better than us. And this is what we, we're, we're asking the same thing. What makes you so special? Who do you think you are? Who made you better than anybody? That's what this question is asking. Who sees anything different in you? And it's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is there's nothing. There's nobody, right? And the Corinthian church, they boasted in their wisdom. They boasted in their leadership. They boasted in their own spirituality and even in their own gifts. So they kind of saw themselves a cut above the average sort. 
And if you remember all the way from chapter 1, Paul tried to remind them to kind of remain humble. He tried to tell them in verse 26 of chapter 1, look, not many of you are wise according to the standards of the world, right? You remember that, Corinthians? Not, not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. And he's basically told them in chapter 1, you're not nearly so impressive as you think you are. Okay, that's what he's saying. And it's kind of sort of in your face here, I think, in, in, in these two verses with this church. And, and for us as well, it, it's bad news for us because we live in a self-esteem culture that has trained us ever since kindergarten to believe that we're all superstars, that we're all superstars just waiting to be discovered, that everyone deserves a first place ribbon. But here Paul is giving us some bad news because what he's saying is this, that before the eyes and the gaze of God, there is nothing, there is nothing that distinguishes in you or me to make him value you at all. He doesn't love us or cherish us or affirm us because he sees something about us or inherent in us that kind of sets us apart from other people around us or next to us. Whether that be your job, whether that be uh, your looks, whether that be your education, whether, whether that be your background or, or, or who you know, or even the color of your skin. There is nothing he's saying, right? There is nothing he says that distinguishes us from anyone else. Who sees anything different in you, okay? There's nothing. And the second question he asks is this, or rhetorically asks, and that is this. What do you have that you did not receive? Now this one, this question we kind of have to think about, but really what he's asking is this. What do you got that you didn't get from somebody else? What do you have that you didn't get from somebody else? And the answer is rhetorical, it's nothing. That's what he's saying, absolutely nothing. Even the fact that you were born, you had nothing to do with that, right? You were a gift to your parents and to your family. You didn't even choose to whom you were born with. You had nothing to say about that. And I think what Paul's trying to say is this, that whatever you have, friends, you've received it from somewhere else. And spiritually thinking, I, I, I think this is the issue with the Koreans, uh, the Corinthians. What do you have that you didn't get? And you think about salvation. Did you earn that? Uh, can you earn your salvation? You, you, you are saved by faith. That's what it means. You are saved by grace, not because you did anything. And it's not of yourself, Paul says later on in the book of Ephesians. And so what is that? It's a gift of God, everything that we've received. And now you might say, well, hey, well, but, but look, I work for this. Uh, here are my abilities. Here are my talents. And the, and the question is the same, but where did you get those, right? Everything is of grace. That's what Paul wants to remind us in this question. And if it's all about grace, Paul's asking us, if it's all a gift, it means you didn't earn them, that you didn't really deserve anything, that your privileges from your material blessings that you enjoy every day to your spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ, your adoption into his family, the, your giving of the Holy Spirit, the riches of Christian fellowship, and a thousand other privileges. What are they but sheer gifts of amazing grace? What did you get that you didn't receive, right? Now, think about this. If you're offended by the fact that Paul is telling us here that, number one, you're nothing special. And number two, you don't have anything that you didn't receive. If you're offended by this, let me remind you of something. Amazing grace is only amazing when you understand 
that it saves a wretch. It saves a wretch like me. That it saves a sinner like me. And if you minimize your sin, you also minimize that grace. Okay? And so he says to the church in Corinth, he says, who makes you better than anyone else? Nothing. Nobody. What do you have that you didn't receive? The answer is nothing. There isn't anyone better than anyone else. They don't have anything that they, they, they deserved or they earned. And so there's nothing there. And so there's no basis for this kind of pride. There's no basis for this kind of sinful pride. There's no reason for it, except for the fact that it's in your own mind and out of your own sin. Right? So that's the issue um, that Paul here is dealing with. Now, here's the, the last point, and um, that is this. What can we do about it? What can we do about our pride? Okay? And the very first thing we need to do is this. We all need to identify it. We need to identify it in ourselves. And I think some of us think, well, that's pretty obvious. We can easily identify pride, but sometimes it's not so easy. You know, let me, let me try to give you an example of, uh, of an issue for me um, that was an issue for me more so. You know, later on in chapter eight, Paul says in verse one, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge it can also make you prideful. And I understand what that, what are you saying? Because, you know, me being a pastor and, and a Christian and, and having gone to seminary, there was a period in my life where I was really into, and I still am, really into theology. But it was, a, it was a moment where all I could think about is certain teachings, certain theology, and would have discussions with other pastors or other Christians about theology. Now, I don't know, this is kind of a nerdy thing for many of you, and maybe you don't relate with this, but I think we can relate in, in one way. Oftentimes, what would happen is this. I would have a discussion maybe with somebody, and we talk about an issue, a point of difference in our theology, in, in what we think about God, and what we think about the Bible, and how God does things. And uh, sometimes when the person disagreed with me, I, you know, oftentimes I was so sure that this, this is what I'm saying, and this is absolutely correct. This is what I think the Bible is saying. And here is this person, and he's saying something completely different, completely the opposite. And I'm trying to convince him, convince him. My intention was to try and uh, encourage him by learning and teaching him something that maybe I think he needs to be corrected in. And, and so I, I know this stuff, and, I, and I'm trying to, to, to talk to him, and we're going back and forth, and we're going back and forth. And if you've ever been in that kind of situation where you're talking to someone like this, here's what's going in my mind as he's telling me, and he keeps on rebutting my, my, my arguments and my, and my, and my thinking. He, I'm thinking this, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You are so dumb. You're so stupid. How do you think like this? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you, can you not, how, how can you not see this? You're so not smart. And you know how these discussions go. The discussion turns into a debate. Debate turns into argument. It turns into fighting. And when you're like this, look, you're not listening. You're never really listening. You, you never let the other person get a word in edgewise. You're always cutting them off. You just want to be heard. You want to just get your thoughts out there. It's not a discussion anymore. It's not an exchange of ideas. It's a debate about who's right and who's wrong. And in this moment, because of what you think you know, you need to be in the right. And that's what you're concerned for. 
And Paul is saying, if you've ever been in this situation, that's actually motivated by pride. And at best, what it means is you've got communication problems. And when you do this, not only do you make other people feel unheard, but you make what they have to say insignificant. But at worst, you make them feel dumb. Oh my God, they are so stupid, right? Uh, that's, that's, what that's what it is. That's an example of how pride works itself out in, in terms of knowledge. And I know many of us, when we think like this, we're saying, no, no, but that's not my intent. You know, I was just trying to uh, you know, just show my opinion or share my thing and help the other person think differently and so on and so forth. But that's what happens. And I think that Paul is saying is an example of pride. Here's the thing about pride. Pride isn't just going around and boasting about or thinking about yourself and saying, hey, look how great I am. Look how good I am. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? But pride can also be much more insidious than that. Pride is ultimately selfish. It's self-centered. It tries to lift the person up. That's what pride does. But sometimes that the way pride tries to lift the self up is by putting others down by putting others down by looking down on them by shutting them up by making them feel dumb that's what pride does okay now so what do we need what do we need to address this well i think we kind of already guess what's the opposite of pride it's humility it's humility but do you know what real humility looks like you know what real humility, humility looks like? Because oftentimes when we think being humble or what humility is, we think, oh, it means to kind of say, I'm no good. You know, I, I stink. It's like, like, you know, if someone came up to me and said, oh, Pastor Francis, that sermon was pretty good last Sunday. I really appreciate it. You know, and in my mind, I'm thinking, of course it is, right? I know it is, right? But what do I say? I say, oh, no, no, no. I'm no good, right? Uh, I, I, I stink. You know, that, look. If I said that because I thought that was humble, number one, that's not only a lie, okay? It's not real humility. It's not real humility. It's a sort of self-abasement, right? A self-abasement that's still focused on me, on the self. That kind of thing is just as self-centered as pride. In fact, uh, it's only a different form of pride. It's false humility. So then what is humility? Well, here's a question you need to think about. What does pride do? It focuses on the self, right? But humility, true humility, real humility, what does it do? It focuses on others. Pride focuses on me. Humility focuses on others. Uh, New York's favorite pastor, Tim Keller, and I've quoted him before from his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, and he puts it much more eloquently in this one paragraph. And he says this, quote, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember for meeting only a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's just thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. 
not needing to connect things with myself all the time, end quote. Now, Pastor Keller is borrowing from C.S. Lewis' book and uh, chapter on pride, and that's what he's talking about. He says this, pride, it's not thinking more of myself, that's pride, but neither is it thinking less of myself. That's also a form of pride. What does he say? It's just thinking of yourself less. You're thinking of yourself less. That's humility. Why? Because you're thinking and you're more interested in others. That's gospel humility. That's what it is. So here's the question then, how do we get that? All right, how do we get that? This is, that's what we need, but how do we get gospel humility? And in verse six of our passage, Paul's absolutely clear. He's saying this to the church. Look, I've been trying to apply these things in my life so that you might learn from us, that you might see from our example. And he's saying this, my example, where do I get that? It comes from the word of God. It does not go beyond what is written. That's what he says in verse 6, right? You may learn from us or by us not to go beyond what is written. Where do you get gospel humility? Where do you find this kind of humility? And Paul's basically saying, it's the word of God. It's the word of God. Now, let me just give you a little aside here, just a quick blurb here about the Bible again. If the word of God, okay, if the Bible has no functional presence in your life, in your thinking, in your hearts, in your minds, in your daily routines, right? If the word of God has no functional presence in your life, it will likely not bear fruit in your life either. And that includes the humility that we find in the Bible. Because what is it that Paul sees that he's learned from and he tells the other church to learn from him? What is it does he see in the word of God? He sees the supreme example of humility in all the scriptures, in all the history, in his Lord Jesus Christ, right? Second uh, chapter of Philippians in verse seven, he says, Jesus humbled himself. You see humility of Jesus Christ in the fact that he just became human, in the fact that he was born in a stable. You see humility in the fact that he had nothing in life, that he was homeless, he was poor, he was dependent, he was partaking in our weakness, he submitted to the law, he became a servant. You see humility in his life when he said he refused the honor of men, that he wouldn't be a king, they wanted to make him one, that he washed other people's feet, that he obeyed his father and he submitted to the suffering, the reproach, the mockery, and he submitted even to death. Why? for the sake of others. That's the gospel humility revealed to us in his word that Paul is referring to. And if you want real, deep, life-changing humility, not false humility, but life-changing humility, okay, it comes with a proper perspective of who God is in his word. Now, why is that? Because here's the reason. If you don't have God, then all you can do is compare yourself to other people. And when you compare yourself to other people, then of course, you may have grounds for thinking that you are better than some, right? I mean, let me be very honest with you. As I look at even my own church and, and all these boxes on my computer screen, and when I think of you, look, I'm going to be very honest. When I look at the church, there are some of you that are better than others. There are some of you that are smarter than others. There are some of you that are prettier or better looking or stronger or, or more educated than others. There are differences that I can see, and some of those differences are very glaring. But 
when I look at you through Jesus Christ, when I look at you how God sees you, you're all the same. You're all the same. You are sinners who have received nothing but grace, who have been loved in spite of yourself by a God who humbled himself on a cross for you. He loved you in spite of yourself. Someone once said this, imitation is the best form of flattery. And I think what Paul's telling us in verse 6 here is this, that imitation may be the best form of worship. He says, look, I apply this to myself. I want you to learn from me. Use me as an example because what I've learned, I've learned from the word of God and what it tells me about Jesus Christ, right? And what he's saying is this, uh, that if you know Jesus Christ, if you know the Bible at all, if you know him, not just in your head, but, but also in your heart, in your daily lives, in his presence, in his word, knowing in your heart that all that you have is grace and you follow him, and you worship him, then Paul says, imitate him. Imitate him. Like Paul imitated him. That's why Paul says later on in, in verse 16 of chapter 4, imitate me as what? As I imitate Christ. And when you imitate Christ, you follow his humility. Now think about this. This is so important, not just as a Christian, but even for those who are not Christians and who are looking at Christians, if you, especially if, you, if you're a Bible study teacher, right? If you ever taught a small group, or even if you're a parent and, and you're trying to teach your kids some of these good things, are you able to say this, that the truth that I'm trying to teach you, at the same time, I'm seeking to live out so that you could imitate me and not just learn from my words. Can you say that as a Bible study leader, as a teacher, as a parent? Can you say in your Sunday school class, in, in your group, or in your home to your children? Can you say, follow my example as I seek to follow Jesus? Let me be a living illustration of the truth that I keep trying to tell you. Because if you can't, then whatever you're saying out of your mouth is just abstract propositional truth. But this is how we get gospel humility. This is how Paul says we avoid being puffed up with pride. We trust in Christ who loved us by dying for our sins, dying for our sinful pride, and then giving us the grace to follow in his footsteps, to imitate his humility. Okay? And so in our passage, Paul then commands us, don't be puffed up with pride. Don't be puffed up with pride. You know what's not puffed up? Do you know what's not puffed up? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, this is what Paul says. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not puffed up. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what he says. Remember in chapter 8, uh, verse 1, I said this, that knowledge puffs up. But right after, what does he say? Love builds up. And here's the thing. Nothing kills pride like seeing that we only deserve the wrath of God, but instead we have received his love, his adopting love, his sanctifying love, love that keeps us and pres preserves us, and one day will bring us to his home. 
love that is demonstrated in the lifeblood of the humility of the cross, love uh, out of the embrace which we could never be plucked out of. When we see this grace upon grace that has been lavished upon us in our lives, guess what that does to our egos in the end? It puts it in check. And this is something that I think about as I look at some of the current issues and the racial divide that we are experiencing today in our country. And I'm still in the process of learning what's going on out there as maybe you're also learning in many ways. But even as I look at this deeper and deeper, more and more things become very divisive. Even those who claim to be on the same side of racial justice, for example, things become very contentious, very debatable, very arguing. And there's people on the same side of things that become also very hateful to one another, saying, you're so stupid, you're dumb, I can't believe you believe this, and so on and so forth. And I don't know if that's beneficial to the cause or to whatever the issues might be. Let me remind you of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This is what he says. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, but last but not least, he says this, to walk humbly with God. Do justice, but love kindness and walk humbly with God. And so for all of us today, wherever you are with your own pride, I pray that your puffed up pride may be melted down by his love and then reforged into a new kind of humility that bears all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let us pray.